Hey there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about NATO and Turkey. We're going to talk about some of the tensions there. As a little bit more has come out of that. We're going to talk about the narrative shifting over the Ukraine war. And we're also going to talk about a Iran and Venezuela signing a cooperation deal. All of that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Turkey changes its name to Turkai. It's a T-U-R-K-I-Y-E instead of the usual T-U-R-K-E-Y. This is sort of a traditionalist rendition of the name, and so it's been uh, formalized as the new official way of saying Turkey. But uh, if my current pronunciations of it have anything to... uh, are telling you anything, I'm probably just going to keep calling it Turkey. But the official name is Turkai now. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it Turkey. Simpler for me. We have the Australian and Chinese defense ministers meeting in Singapore after a three-year silence and absence of dialogue between the two. Uh, maybe this will result in an end of the trade war between China and Australia. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll just be, like they said, a first step. Or maybe it won't result in anything at all. Only time will tell, but they've met for the first time in three years. We also, uh, while we're talking about China, we have Pakistan and China, who have agreed to closer military cooperation. This probably got India's attention, uh, so we'll, we'll see how India responds to that. Uh, I know India, China, and Russia are pretty much on the same page right now uh, with regards to opposition to the United States and Europe, uh, particularly when it comes to the Ukraine war. But India is a great power. They have their own interests and closer military cooperation between China and Pakistan. Well, probably not in India's interests. So we could see after this war, divisions reoccur. Now, I'm not saying there's going to be a war between the two, but that's when we're looking at the security concerns of India, they feel encircled. And this probably isn't going to help that feeling. So we'll, we'll see. We'll definitely see what India does in response to this. Uh, although I know uh, people in America are going to lose their minds over this. Those who know about it anyway. Because uh, everyone's afraid of China taking over the world. But I'll digress. We have in Libya, the Nawasi Brigade and the Stability Support Force, two rival militias who have backed opposing prime minister candidates in Libya, they've gotten into a skirmish in the streets of Tripoli, and it uh, looks like it's going to be war then, because there's supposed to be a vote happening, But and one of the prime ministers, I believe, actually I'm not even going to go into that, I'll, I might end up saying that he's supported by the exact opposite faction, I'll, so I'll just say one of the prime ministers, as I was reading it, would not concede unless it was to a a democratic vote. And that vote has not been held yet, which is kind of why the elections are as big of a deal as they are. 
and why continuing to put them off continues to prolong the Civil War. But at the same time, as I argue, having the vote might just lead to even more chaos, because what if the other guy chooses not to concede then too? Or if the man currently holding up his opposition until the vote, if he if his side loses, does he say the vote was rigged and just continue the, the war? Anything can happen here. Anything can happen here. You have whole militias uh, in Tripoli who just will not accept whatever the result of the vote is. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing. So when you have forces like that and open-ended questions like what, what's each side going to do when the vote actually does happen, I see conflict. We hope for the best, but you know me, I like to speculate. And my speculatory senses, my spider senses, so to speak, tell me this is going to end in shooting. And someone's just going to have to win the Civil War. And with forces coalesced like this near the city of Tripoli, it might be easier to score some sort of decisive victory. Who knows? But I think this is going to end in guns and a military surrender rather than a vote. But we can always hope for the best. The vote still hasn't happened yet. So it's still possible that the war does end through peaceful means. But we'll have to see. There's a lot riding on this vote. In other news, though, we have Nicaragua opening up to Russian ships and commercial planes. That's going to be a little bit more important later on when we get into the meat. So I'll just throw that out there now. Speaking of Russia... The Russian ruble, get this, has become the strongest currency in the world. Wow. Just wow. Now, maybe maybe this because I'm uh, three and a half million years old, but I remember back in my day, you, you, you all are probably too young to remember this, but back in my day, the mother of all sanctions was going to kill the Russian economy. We were gonna, we we're gonna kick them off of Swift, and that was just gonna, that was just gonna be it. That was gonna be it, and the Russian economy was just gonna implode on itself, and they'd die, or they'd all just uh, starve in a massive famine, and it'd be the, the worst of all times in Russian history. And the war was supposed to end, and Ukraine was gonna win. Now, again, maybe I'm, it's just because I'm a dinosaur. Maybe that meteor hit me too hard on the head. But that's uh, how things were back in my day. And now, how things have changed. Not, not just stable. Not just exactly where it was before. But the strongest currency in the world. Goodness. And, and I, I, that'll be a little bit more important later on, too. Uh, all that, uh, that little bit that I just did. Uh, we have the former Bolivian president, though, Jeannie Añez, who, who's been sentenced to 10 years in prison. Uh, Brazil and America have decided to cooperate on curbing the illegal timber coming out of the Amazon rainforest. And China and Russia have opened a new bridge. It's a pretty-looking bridge, and it was a really nice day out. And they had like, these rainbow-colored uh, fireworks. Uh, probably not for Pride Month. Uh, they... they... <laughs> <laughs> they don't do that over there, but <laughs> but uh, 
uh, I, I'll just say that the opening of this bridge was probably more symbolic than it was ever intended to be. A sign of building bridges instead of burning them. Uh, but that's just my takeaway from it. It was a pretty basic thing. You just, there were fireworks and the bridge was open and people were watching. And you saw the first trucks go across. So, trade with Russia and China's probably going to increase, at least the overland trade anyway, and they'll probably have more bridges under construction as we speak. They like to build things on that side of the world. So, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the rapid fire. And we'll get into the juicy, juicy meat of today's episode in just a moment. Alright, we're back at it. But where should we start? Uh, we'll start with NATO and Turkey. That's the, the smallest of the ones I got today. So we'll just jump into it. Because uh, last week, Jens Stoltenberg stated his agreement with Turkey in that Turkey has legitimate security concerns. These concerns being that Finland and Sweden, in aiding Kurdish militant groups, pose themselves security threats. Will they make themselves security threats to Turkey? by aiding these groups. And Jens Stoltenberg openly acknowledges this. And Jens is the head of the NATO command. Which is why he is uh, which is why he's the the person of importance today. So he acknowledges these concerns. That's what he said. So yeah what and that does bring up some interesting questions, but uh, I'll just go on with what he said after that as well. He said uh, during the press conference he did in Finland, he said, quote, these are legitimate security, oh, goodness, quote, these are legitimate security concerns. This is about terrorism. It's about weapons exports. He later went on to say, quote, we have to remember and understand that no NATO ally has suffered more terrorist attacks than Turkey, end quote. And as a little tidbit, I should say he pronounced Turkey the new way with the the Turkai, the Turkai. Uh, so I, he's clearly trying to uh, not come off as antagonistic towards Turkey. He's trying to uh, appease and please them right now because they're going to cock block the admission of Finland and Sweden into NATO, and he doesn't want that. But what I've witnessed is. Uh, in him doing this, he's sort of kickstarted this strange balancing act where he's openly advocating the membership of Sweden and Finland on the one hand, while also acknowledging the security concerns that Turkey has about those two specific countries joining this alliance. And he's saying Turkey's name the new way. He's, yes, these are security concerns, yes. It, Turkey has endured more terrorist attacks than any other country, of which a decent number of those have probably been committed by the very Kurdish groups that Finland and Sweden are aiding. So he's, he's doing that, and then he's going right back over the other side. Well, we do want Finland and Sweden to join NATO. We're open for them to come. We're giving them the fast track. It's a very, I'll say, tedious tightrope he's walking I don't know if he's gonna be able to pull it off and like in the back of my mind I'm like there's there's no way we we have Finland and Sweden join 
without them making some significant concession to Turkey to keep them from either leaving the alliance or to keep them from straight up cock blocking Finland and Sweden joining in the vote because it takes a unanimous vote. It only takes one country to stop that from happening. And Turkey's the biggest, most consequential one of the countries who don't want Finland and Sweden to join. So what do they do? Now, I've gone over the, uh, the number of ways I think this can go. One of them being Turkey might actually just get kicked out of the alliance. Then you don't have to worry about their vote at all. And it sends a message to all the other ones, the other members who say no to the, the real leaders of the alliance, that's being Western Europe and the United States. There's also the possibility that they bribe Turkey into saying yes. But then that opens the door to any member of the alliance bidding for bribes every time the alliance tries to do something that they don't like. And you get a really unwieldy and incohesive alliance structure if that's how things go down in the future. We'd set a really bad precedent if we start doing that now. And then there's the possibility that Turkey's, well, specifically Erdogan, that he's just bluffing and he doesn't actually mean it and that he's not going to say no to Finland and Sweden join, and he's doing this specifically to get something out of the alliance. But for now, we'll just go with the assumption that he does mean what he says, and that he will say no, uh, should all things stay the same. And again, that leads to the very interesting balancing act that Jens Stoltenberg and other advocates of NATO who want Finland and Sweden to join NATO, have to now walk. Because it's a choice between new members, potentially, and a pre-existing member. What's in the... Are you going to choose the new kids or the, the old reliable? Which one do you choose? Because if you, if you say no to an, a pre-existing member of the alliance to add new members... You've essentially said that the alliance is meaningless. Because if you're not going to look out for the security concerns of a country that's already in the alliance, well, what's the purpose of the alliance? What's the purpose in adding these new countries to the alliance if you're not going to look out for the security concerns of members in the alliance? You will have added countries to NATO while effectively killing any purpose that NATO could have potentially possibly still had. And I myself am of the opinion that it doesn't have a purpose. So what, what's left over of NATO as an institution, uh, the institution that theoretically will defend all member states, uh, the Article 5, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. If you're not going to look out for the security interests of Turkey, who is a NATO member, well, what reason do Finland and Sweden, after joining the alliance, what reason do they have to believe you look out for their interests? If you were willing to abandon a long-standing member of the alliance for them, we'd, we'd kill the credibility of NATO overnight. So, how does one walk this tightrope? Uh, I asked the question for a friend, because I'm not the one walking it, and I don't envy 
uh, Stoltenberg, who is currently walking it right now. I would not want to be in his position, but quite frankly, I wouldn't be in his position. I would have just said no. <laughs> but anyway, it's very interesting to watch, and it'll be very interesting to continue watching and see where this goes, because this is sort of uncharted territory for NATO. NATO's never had to be in a position like this, or it has to make a choice like this. It's, we're in unprecedented times. We are very much in unprecedented times. And uh, hopefully this doesn't lead to yet another shooting war. Uh, but the, this is Europe we're talking about, so the possibility is always there, even though we people like to pretend that it's not. But uh, we'll definitely see where this goes. We'll definitely see where this goes. But now we get to the other pieces of the meat but which one should I do first? Should I get to Ukraine or should, do I get to the Iran and Venezuela? I think I'm going to do Iran and Venezuela. That's what I'm going to do. And because on this segment, I have written down as the sort of the header for it that a new global order is coming. And I guess that's a fair summation. And it'll only make sense if I lay it out to you. So I'll just go. Iran and Venezuela last week signed a 20-year cooperation deal which also had uh, other smaller cooperation deals on tourism oil the economy and trade and petrochemicals so they're going to be cooperating on a wide range of things but uh generally centered around their oil and energy industries which they do have in common so it seems to me, first of all and foremost, that Iranian industry and energy is no longer the global pariah. It is very quickly making a comeback here. That's, what, that's one of the first takeaways that I get from this deal. Because this, combined with their uh, partnership with China, where China is getting oil from Iran, the Iranian energy industry is going to make a comeback. Freka, Freka sanction. They're they're going to come back, and they're Iran again in its long chain of just really good strategic decisions, where they place themselves on the winning side of conflict after conflict after conflict, and are themselves are the winning side of their own conflict with the United States and Israel. This is no different. This is no different. They placed themselves on the side of Russia in the Russo-Ukrainian war. And Russia's, about, Russia's just about ready to win that war. And we'll get into that later. They're probably going to place themselves on the side of China when the Taiwan war starts. And they're just reaping the all the rewards from all these really good strategic decisions. Like, I, it's just a masterclass in grand strategy. If there ever was one to behold. If you wanted a masterclass in grand strategy, look no further than Iran, because they're doing it. They're doing it. It's like it's like every country right now is being played by AI, and there's a whole human player <laughs> on Iran just making the, the most brilliant tactical strategic decisions you've ever seen, with such limited resources, on the hardest difficulty setting because they're just under sanction everywhere, and they're surrounded by U.S. troops. It's, it's insane. It's insane. And so now, 
they've secured their position so great, so muchly. Uh, I'm making up words now. Uh, so much so, there we go. They've secured their position so much so that now they're reaching out across the Atlantic to make a deal, a 20-year cooperation deal with Venezuela. And this is going to be used to help their energy industry make that full recovery at a time when oil is over $100 a barrel and climbing. Just, again, just just genius. It's just genius. I, I, I know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop stroking their cock in a minute, but just, please, look, look. We could be doing things like this. We could be making deals like this where we actually get something out of it, something tangible, something real. Some real benefits, not, oh, this country has democracy. That doesn't mean anything to us. They're about to revive their energy sector after decades of being sanctioned into the dirt. And they're doing it right in front of us while we're paying five, six, seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon. I, I envy them. I, I, I said it once, I'll say it again. I envy the leadership of countries like this. But <laughs> back to the my segment. They're making a 20-year cooperation deal with Venezuela now. They've just shored up their position at home enough to where they can do this. And Nicolas Maduro, the leader of Venezuela, and Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, they met in Tehran, the Iranian capital, and there, the Ayatollah had some words to say. Quote, The conclusion that can be drawn from the resistance and success of the two nations of Iran and Venezuela is that the only way against pressure is to stand and resist, end quote. Now, he is obviously referring to pressure from the United States. And I say that because the United States is the only country putting pressure on both them and Venezuela, and the only country that Iran takes seriously as an enemy that isn't Israel. Like, it's only Iran who, well, only Iran, it's only Israel and the United States who Iran considers to be just genuine enemies of the state. And Israel ain't putting no pressure on Venezuela, and Israel's not putting economic pressure on Iran. Uh, they'll be more than happy to assassinate somebody, though. <laughs> but um, it's pretty clear that they're talking about the United States here. So that's what he says. And the Ayatollah continues. He says, quote, This is a good sign that proves to everyone that resistance will work and will force the enemy to retreat, end quote. Now again, it, it doesn't take a genius to see he's referring to America when he says the enemy. And I, is he really wrong? I mean, aside from the natural offense that can be taken from him referring to us as the enemy, is he wrong, though? He says resistance, standing up, and in the face of all this pressure is the only way to win. And it will make the enemy retreat. Their neighbor to their east, Afghanistan, literally did that for 20 years. <laughs> very convenient number there 
For 20 years, Afghanistan stood up, resisted, and guess who ended up going home? America. And now the Islamic Republic is dead, and the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, otherwise known as the Taliban, is back in charge. Iran, under sanctions for all these years, now they're gonna they're reviving their energy industry they're reaching out they're making friends they're making deals they're getting infrastructure projects they're they're signing 20-year cooperation deals with countries on the other side of the atlantic like venezuela and the only reason they're able to do this is because they didn't collapse under the weight of u.s pressure which is what the u.s leadership wanted to do all these damn warmongers who just feel it's necessary to kill other people's countries. But Iran stood up. They resisted. They, they resisted for a long time. They had to resist for a really long time. But now the dividends are coming in. Now the payoff is coming in. And they're reaping the rewards like madmen. They're, 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 not, they're not going crazy with power. But they, they're they reaping their rewards. They have sown this, and they've sown this, and they've sown it for such a long time. Now they're reaping. And it's a glorious harvest for Iran today. They're reviving their, their energy. They're reviving their industry. They're reviving their infrastructure. They're reviving their economy. They're following in the footsteps of other countries like Russia and China. They have deals with Russia and China. They are friends with Russia and China. Really good strategic investments with regards to foreign relations. They've, put them, they've set themselves up for success. And it's only because they resisted that they are now able to reap the rewards of those policies. Because if they had collapsed and the U.S. was in charge of Iran, well, the, the, Iran wouldn't be able to do any of this. Iranian oil would just be a thing of the past. Iran would just, uh, they'd have to keel over to whatever Israel says. Because the U.S. is just going to make sure that Israel gets whatever it wants out of Iran. But it, Iran resisted. And now they reap the rewards. Venezuela. Very, not quite the same thing, but close enough. You have constant interventions by the U.S. and Venezuela. Constant sanctions. Constant economic pressures embargoes a, a whole assassination attempts or attempts to overthrow the government just you you name it so much intervention so much pressure being put on Venezuela by the United States but they resisted as well and it was pretty shitty pretty shitty in Venezuela and in many ways it still is that that hyperinflation is a, a monster and it's coming to a US city near you but even under all that pressure they resisted and now they too get to reap the rewards because now they're signing 20 year long cooperation deals with Iran now they're signing deals with they're going to be signing deals with China. They're going to be signing deals with Russia. Russia, who has the strongest currency in the world right now. They're going to be cooperating on energy. They're going to be cooperating on industry. 
they're gonna be they're gonna be building at a time when they they sh should have been destroyed, given all the pressure and sanctions and attempts at overthrowing governments that we've been putting on them. What the Ayatollah said here, that resistance is the only way. It's true. It's true. And, and he says we're the enemy. And while, again, we can take offense to that, I myself see that as the symptom of a larger problem. The, 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 them viewing us as the enemy. Because we, we don't have to be their enemy. Uh, I we brought that up in the last episode. But the fact that we are enemies with this country that we don't need to be enemies with, part, especially Venezuela, especially Venezuela, this is the results of our foreign policy. Uh, that, that's the problem, the larger problem that has led to this symptom of us being their enemy. And it's namely, uh, not just the foreign policy, but namely our incessant interventionism. We have made enemies of Iran and Venezuela when we didn't need to. Why are we enemies with Iran? Because Israel wants that? Who's Israel? They're not America. Why are we enemies with Iran? Why do, why do we care that the Ayatollah is in charge and not some democracy? That's not our country. We can do trade with countries that aren't democracies. We've been able to do that for our entire history. Demo D democracies weren't the norm until the, the the ending phase of the 19th century. And it still took more time for them to expand further. We've been dealing with non-democratic governments for the majority of our history. China and Iran are no different. Afghanistan, no different. So, why are we enemies with Iran? Because we chose to be. And that's really it. We chose to be. For the sake of another country. Because we decided that their government and how it ran itself was our business. And that's, that's the problem, not the solution. People view that as the solution. It's not. That's the problem. We made enemies of a country that we didn't need to be enemies with. And the same goes for Venezuela. No one appreciates it when you try to overthrow their government. And again, I mentioned last episode how we're, we're only enemies with Iran because we're serving the interests of Israel. If we were serving the interests of America, we would have nothing to do with the countries over there unless they wanted a trade deal. In which case, we can do that from the comfort of home and leave them alone. Yeah, that's a very nice rhyme I've got there. But it's true. And with Venezuela, we've decided we're, we, we went even further. We we decided we were going to, we were going to decide for them, who the real winner of their election was, and we decided it was Juan Guaido instead of Nicolas Maduro. Although when Biden made his uh, begging tour for oil, he didn't go to Juan Guaido, he went to Maduro, when he wanted some oil, and Maduro told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> 
You know, he, okay, he did, okay, he, okay, he, he didn't say all that. But his actions did. <laughs> Get this. We didn't go to Guaido, we went to Maduro. So, I guess Maduro's the, the real president, huh? Uh, or at the very least, he's the guy in power. You know, not to go too far there. Maybe Juan Guaido did win the election. But case in point is, that's not our election. Now, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you all up and down. This man Biden did not win our election. No. Catch me outside. I'll tell you. He didn't do it. I don't believe him. But I live in America. This is my country. I'm a citizen here. This is my business. Who wins the elections in Venezuela is not any of my business. Now, again, maybe Juan Guaido did win and Nicholas cheated. Maybe Nicholas won and Juan Guaido attempted to cheat. I don't know. And quite frankly, I don't care. It's not my country. They they can have that debate as long as they would like. But when we're dealing with foreign policy, Nicholas is the guy to go to. He has the power. Which is exactly why when Biden went on his begging tour, he went to Maduro. But... Because we always want to involve ourselves in other people's business, it, it just creates more problems than it ever solves. I mean, honestly, we, we try to intervene everywhere, intervene here, intervene there, always in other people's business, but we never consider the consequences of those actions. Because every action has a consequence, but we th those actions we never consider the consequences of. We just think it's the, the natural, humane thing to do. And if you don't want intervention... Well, you, you just don't care about those people over there. Well, no. I'm thinking, uh, what comes after that? Because the consequences of our actions is that w generations of overthrowing other people's governments brings us trouble. And we're just now starting to see the fruit of that trouble. Anti-American coalitions. We see it with China and Russia. Now we see it with Iran and Venezuela. Now, the Russo-Chinese alliance was, by itself, too damn much for us to handle on our own, as Russia and China are individually peer powers to the United States. Russia's a peer power, China's a peer power, by themselves. So the two together is too much for the United States. Uh, now, we don't need to be enemies with those two either, but we made ourselves enemies because we decided that we were going to go contain uh, communism in where? In other people's countries. Okay. Well, Russia's not communist anymore. Well, we're going to keep being antagonistic towards them. Okay. Oh, but we, 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 there's a war in Ukraine. Well, now we're going to back the Ukrainians. We, at every turn, we make ourselves an enemy to Russia. We don't need to be in the South China Sea. We don't need to be defending Taiwan, but we choose to do those things. So we make ourselves enemies with China too. It, it, it's the problem of our foreign policy. The foreign policy is the problem. Interventionism is the root of that problem. And these anti-American coalitions that we're starting to see now, those are the fruits of the problem. We see it with China and Russia. Now we see it with Iran and Venezuela. And while... Iran and Venezuela may not be peer powers to the United States. 
They're not. They're just not. But they control oil. And we have become so weak with regards to our energy production that even they can hurt us. They can hurt us too. Just like China and Russia can. Iran and Venezuela can hurt us too if they wanted to do so. And they will not be the last countries to make such anti-American coalitions. Now granted, Iran and Venezuela, what they really want out of the United States is for us to leave them the fuck alone. And that that's all we have to do to stop being enemies with a lot of these countries. Just leave them alone. But that's asking too much. That's unrealistic. All right, that's That's inhumane. Or so many would say it. But they just want us to leave, us, leave them alone. That's all we have to do. So that's the good news and the bad news. The good news is all we have to do is leave other countries alone and we won't be enemies with them. But no, groundbreaking discovery there. The bad news is that's the only option taken off the table uh, when we're having discussions about foreign policy. That's, that's viewed as weakness and giving ground to China and other nonsense. But uh, even that mentality itself is a, a part of the problem. And a problem caused by decades, uh, at this point generations, of interventionism. And as much as I can and will straight up demonize interventionism as though it were the spawn of Satan, which it just may well be, although I can't prove that, I can't prove that, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be opposed to such a discovery, let me say that. But as much as I'll demonize interventionism as an idea, as a policy, and as a, a foreign policy, what we're witnessing with Iran and Venezuela coming together, I'd say that things like that do an even better job of demonizing interventionism. Because when things like that happen, you can see it. You can see what intervention gets you. You can see it because it's the consequences of our actions. This is what generations of overthrowing other people's governments has brought us. Anti-American coalitions. And, I, again, they won't be the last. They will not be the last. Nicaragua, I said it, or mentioned it earlier this episode, they've opened up their sea and airports to Russian ships and aircraft. They've clearly aligned themselves with Russia. While we're standing with Ukraine, hashtag stand with Ukraine, by the way, there's also Cuba aligning itself with Russia because we won't unembargo them and stop sanctioning them. What did they do that was so wrong? They, they, they allowed the Russians to put missiles on, on their shores? Well, why did they do that? Oh, because we tried to overthrow their government because they decided that they were going to be communists. Which is something that doesn't concern us, or at least it didn't, when they first when their revolution first happened. They were more than willing to still have cordial relations with the United States, even if we were their ideological enemies. They didn't want more enemies. They just fought a war. They just had a revolution. They were literally just killing their own brothers and cousins and family in the streets. They didn't want new enemies. But we decided, oh, we're just going to overthrow their government. And because they're, they've decided that they were going to have a different ideology than us. And we made that problem. 
and it escalated almost to nuclear war. But because Cuba is a hell of a lot more important than East Germany, we were willing to take that risk. And luckily, de-escalation came in. And of course, Kennedy had to be shot because of that. <laughs> but again, interventionism creates problems. More problems than it solves. And we can see it. The, the remnants of past intervention. Those, all those loose ends that we refuse to tie back up in Latin America with Nicaragua, with Cuba, Venezuela. These were loose ends. And now they're, they're tying themselves up now because we didn't have the guts to reconfigure our foreign policy towards something that made sense. Because we didn't have the, the humility to stop meddling in other people's governments. We made enemies for ourselves with these policies. And now we're dealing with countries who are dangerously close to America itself. They're, they're aligning themselves with ho other hostile powers. Who, again, we, we made our enemies. And we're, we're just making enemies on top of enemies. That's what interventionism does. But these countries who are dangerously close to the United States are becoming, well, they, uh, they are... Our enemies when they should be our closest of friends however our insistence on meddling in the affairs uh, overthrowing their meddling in their affairs overthrowing their governments and crushing them with endless sanctions have made enemies we didn't need to have and for what so we can please allies in Europe that we also didn't need to have so we can stop the spread of communism in other people's countries we have become the baddies i mean whenever someone somewhere does something we don't like we sanction them we bomb them we invade them we overthrow their government interventionism has made america the enemy of the world and now we're seeing coalitions pop up left and right to contain us we're the ones being contained now. We're, we're the baddies. But it, it, it doesn't have to be it. It doesn't have to be this way. It really, truthfully, doesn't have to be this way. But until we let go of interventionism and let it go for good, we will remain the evil empire. And we will remain... The country that gets contained instead of the country that contains others. We're the problem, but we don't have to be. Now, I advocate the solution, which is to mind our own business. And that's all we have to do. It's that simple. So the, the door is always open. I just hope we can take it. But uh, that's, that's uh, Iran and Venezuela being much more consequential than anyone thought that they could be together. Or... Or at the very least, more consequential than I thought they would be. But that's uh, one takeaway. But now we get into the Ukraine war. And uh, how things have changed. Because the narrative is starting to shift. But before it does make that full shift, I, I want to I take us back. Back in time a little bit. And just go over all the things we've seen so far. Coming out of the reporting 
on this war. Because when Russia began its invasion of Ukraine in late February of this year, 2022, everyone expected the war to be over within weeks. As we can all see now, going on to day, what is it, 107, 110, I've actually... I know we're over 100. I have I lost track of the, the days back when we were on like day 37 or something. So that was a couple months ago. But as we can see, Russia did not take over the country in a matter of weeks. But and it, a very interesting thing came from that, which is a complete 180 in Western thinking on the Russian military. And what it was and was able was and wasn't able to do, because in days after you know week like one or two went by, and Ukraine was still in the fight, we got analysts, political commentators, and so-called experts who went from believing the Russian military was a near omnipotent force, which, to be fair. I guess I'd fit into that category, too, with how much I hyped up their military, and still continue to do so. <laughs> but within days, we went from that to uh, uh, we went from believing that they were a near-omnipotent force that needed to be contained. We needed NATO. We, we had to keep them over there so we didn't have to fight them over here, all that nonsense. We went from that to a casual dismissal of any Russian military capabilities whatsoever. Immediately, we were inundated with glorious Ukraine war stories. The, the Snake Island soldiers who told that Russian naval ship to fuck off. Or, or how the, the ghost of... The ghost of Kiev... The ghost of Kiev took out 12 Russian aircraft in, one, in a single day. And he's, uh, he's on the hunt. He's the, the savior of the city, the savior of the capital city, and he's going to win the war for them. Or that 40-mile-long convoy of Russian troops and tanks and men who, the 40-mile-long convoy, we had the stories of men who had to stay and fight while the masses of women and children left the country to escape the war. We were inundated from there on after with Endless stories of Ukrainian triumph in the face of overwhelming odds. Stories of NATO unity and Western solidarity with Ukraine. The incompetence of the Russian military and the inadequacies of Russian logistics. We were inundated with stories regarding the folly of Putin's war and how he inadvertently united the West who had been divided for so long and directionless aimless even now they were more united than ever before all because of Putin's folly in Putin's war we, we heard stories of mass anti-war protests springing up across Russia and we, uh, stories of Putin in poor health and plots of coups on him and assassination attempts ready to remove him from power that's what we were told and Throughout all that, only fragments of the truth managed to slip through the wall-to-wall -wall coverage given to this uh, glorious story, uh, or glorious as we we're supposed to believe it was. 
but a few, but few, would be able to pick up those fragments and paste together something closer to the real picture. It was difficult at first, but then we we got our people got our bearings, and we were able to piece together a, a better picture of what was going on. Uh, again, a very few people were able to do this. People like Jimmy Dore, Alex and Alexander of the Duran. Jimmy Dore has the Jimmy Dore Show. Alex and Alexander of the Duran. Aaron Mate and Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone. There was Donald Trump and even Tucker Carlson from the Tucker Carlson Show. And of course, your host for this lovely little podcast, me. We all got it right. We all managed to pick up those pieces of truth and put together a, a more accurate picture than what was being painted for us by what can only be described as propagandists, paid propagandists at that. Now, what this uh, incredibly strange collection of people managed to find in all this was that uh, after sifting through the rubble of propaganda and all that, all the, the strange nonsense that we had to deal with, and, and hashtags of standing with Ukraine, and the sudden absence of any, any talk of Nazis in Ukraine, what we were able to find uh, was that what we were told was a whole lot of propaganda. That's what we found out. And what we piece together is a picture that looks more like uh, a picture that goes more as follows. Ukraine, first of all, is not winning the war. Russia has not failed to achieve its objectives. There's not going to be a guerrilla war in Ukraine. Putin is not losing his legitimacy in Russia. The mother of all sanctions did not kill the Russian economy. The Russian economy is not the size of New York State. There are Nazis controlling the Ukrainian government, and they are not some minor faction within it, some minor inconsequential faction. No, they control the reins of power. The Snake Island defenders did not die defending the island. In fact, they were arrested after surrendering to the very same ship they told to fuck off. And they were carried away very humanely and imprisoned. And the Russians took the island. Ukraine attempted to take it and failed. We also learned that the ghost of Kiev, the ghost of Kiev, who did not shoot down 12 Russian aircraft because the, the ghost of Kiev did not exist. Well, not outside the video game footage he was taken from. There were as we found out, U.S. biolabs in Ukraine, and they were not conducting harmless tests and experiments. Russia's troops are not demoralized. Russia has not failed to gain air superiority. The Javelin missiles we're providing are not giving Ukraine the edge in this war, and our supply of those missiles, as we are finding out for ourselves, uh, well, in a very dangerous way, we're finding out that the supply of those missiles is not infinite. We, we need to keep some for ourselves, otherwise we'd be compromising our own security. What we've also found out 
is that the world is not united against Putin's Russia. The world is, in fact, not turning away from Russian energy, their oil and natural gas. There are more than $50 billion that we've given to Ukraine, and they will not be an investment in the destruction of Russia's military. We've also learned that Russia is not going to come out of this war weaker than when they went in. At every turn, there was just one propaganda piece after the next, which leads me to ask, how many lies? How many lies? We're in, oh, we're over 100 days into this war, and so many lies have been exposed, it's mind-boggling. It, I'm pretty sure I haven't even managed to encapsulate them all. Actually, I can guarantee you I haven't, but... I've gotten a great many of them, particularly the prominent lies. But how many? How many lies? All the all these lies that we've managed to unearth, and yet we also have to think about how many lies have we been told that we have yet to unearth. Even we, the people who piece together the fragments of truth to paint a picture closer to reality, the reality on the ground. I mean, uh, honestly, go, let's look at Zelensky, who be, went from being nobody to a hero overnight. And now now instead of wearing his suit, he wears this, that that green and that, that army green uh, turtleneck with those baggy pants where he he pretends he's a, a right. He's just like you and me. He's a regular person. And he's a he's a just he's in just as bad of a shape as you and me. And he became a hero overnight when the war began. So how long until that falls apart? How long until that falls apart too? And we learn some horrendous thing about this man, who we're all supposed to believe is is just Winston Churchill and FDR combined, just uh, just the the best of war heroes, and a real Ukrainian patriot standing up to the authoritarianism of uh, Vladov Putler, as a uh, that Felix Rex says, which I gotta say is actually pretty clever, Vladov Putler. I mean, we're supposed to be, believe that Putin is Hitler, which he's not, but that's also something we, we've discovered, or knew all along, in my case. Uh, but how many lies? I really can't tell you. I can ask, <laughs> but we can all do that. How many lies have we been told that we still haven't even managed to scrape away uh, and find the truth underneath how many lies will we be told before the war is even over how many lies will we be told after the war when the damage control comes in and all the people who got it wrong start trying to cover their ass which we're already starting to see because the story is already starting to change because the facts on the ground are becoming so much because they're becoming so, uh, how I say, incompatible, irreconcilable with what's being told to us, that the the story being told to us has to change. Otherwise, uh, we're we're just gonna wake up one day and find out that Ukraine lost the war, and it'll be, it'll be almost like the politicians in Germany, in World War One, who thought they were winning the war, right up until the moment that fucking Ludendorff. 
and uh, Hindenburg, that's the name. Ludendorff and Hindenburg basically just walked up to them and said, yeah, we lost the war. We should probably sign an armistice now. Bobby. Because uh, uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. I I'm almost at a loss for words. Just watching the propaganda. The machine. And now it's going to be even more mind-boggling to watch the machine try to cover its own ass and come up with even more propaganda to cover for the propaganda it already told. Because even while it tells the truth, which is that Ukraine has lost, and they're still losing, they're not going to win. Even as the news and the mainstream media starts to admit this, and all the politicians who got us into this mess, and all the, the defense uh, intelligence agencies, and the, the Department of Defense... When, as all of them are coming around to this fact, which many of them knew going into this, but are only now deciding to tell us, even as they're telling us this, they're going to spin it in a way that, that makes it look like uh, this is just some new turn of events, like this wasn't always going to be the outcome. But, again, this, the fact that the story is changing is only due to the fact that the, the facts on the ground are no longer able to be hidden. And they're so irreconcilable with what's being told that what's being told has to change so that you you can have some sort of spin on it at all. Otherwise, you're just going to have a story that doesn't make sense even with the spin. And at that point, the credibility just dies. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the story is that the Russians are winning. Yeah, that's the story. Uh, I could stop the episode right there. But the blame game has already begun. I know Jimmy Dora did an episode on it, and basically what we have, what we're starting to see now is that uh, the blame game is starting, and it's a game played by all the people who were supposed to know what they were talking about, but failed to tell the hard truth. That's what they did. They failed to tell the truth, because a lot of them knew, all right? There's no way they can be this dumb or this incompetent. At a certain point, we have to assume deliberate intent of withholding the truth. That, that's just what we have to go with. Because there's no way you miss this. Especially the intelligence agencies. Because we, we're, we're not in a position now where someone's going to have to take the fall for all the lies that were told. And all the lies that have yet to be told and yet to be exposed as lies. And the politicians are blaming the intelligence agencies. The intelligence agencies are blaming the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense is blaming the Ukrainian government for not sharing the information. And all the experts who were supposed to have gotten this right from the start, who were supposed to be advising us and guiding us on what to expect from this war and what, what to expect from modern warfare in, between Russia and Ukraine and all those people. They're vanishing into the night already. Vanishing. They're never going to be heard from again. And they're going to be replaced with new experts who will say the same things, but rebranded and remarketed to make it seem like they were right all along and that they knew what they were talking about. And if only we had listened to th these new experts when the war first started, oh, gee, we'd be in such a better position. And then they're going to be peddled to us until the next war. When, when they're proven that 
they don't know what they're talking about or because they just didn't tell the truth and they have to disappear too. But when they come around doing the, the damage control, the, the new class of experts that we're going to be listening to for the next couple months until Taiwan happens, they're going to show up and they're going to come with their book deals attached. Be like, we got it right and here's our book deal. Buy my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even as they do that, no real solutions will be enacted so we don't get into situations like this again. No real solutions. No change of course. It will just have more of the same, but we'll expect different. And that's the a problem brought to us by our refusal to let go of interventionism. Because uh, interventionism, the problems that it creates are always used to justify more interventionism. So we're going to get more of the same, and we're going to use the Ukraine war as a reason why now we have to double, triple down on the commitments we already have. Because if we just back away after losing in, in Ukraine, well, what does that say to our allies? Well, quite frankly, I don't care what it says to our allies. I care what it says to me. And <laughs> backing away says to me that I'm in good hands. And that's all I care about. Call me selfish. Call me American. I call it exceptional. <laughs> but no no solutions will be enacted no change of course just more of the same but hopefully though uh the public will realize that they've been given an incredible crash course on the dangers of propaganda and fake news but that my friends is real news and all i have for you today i hope you've enjoyed today's uh broadcast or <clears throat> on my lovely geopolitical podcast it's been an honor getting this story right with you from a uh, day one let's go let's go we get it right on this uh podcast let's go ah, but the world is changing as our neighbor venezuela and our not neighbor iran has shown us but what this podcast has shown us is that we will watch that shit together and we'll have fun doing it now i've been your host hi sean wade and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.